continue our controversial uh, Jesus series. We started it last week and we spoke about tolerance. And today we're going to take tolerance for a test drive. Um, because we're going to talk about sexuality. Because there is no, and if Lori, if Lori didn't ice the room, believe me, I will in just a minute here. But there is no greater topic that is the litmus test of tolerance in 2019 than sexuality. And I want to say a few things before I say what I really want to say. First and foremost, um, we as the church, we are responsible for a lot of brokenness in the area of sexuality. And so before we look at the speck that is in the eye of culture, we have to also look at the plank that is in our own eye in terms of the devastation. I'm not just talking about this church, I'm talking about the church, okay? So there's no place of arrogance or pride. Second thing I would say today is I'm, I'm well aware that words and things that I say could sting. That for me, they may be a pebble, but for you, that they're a rock. But above all, I am praying for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be amongst us. Because in Christ, as I've said repeatedly now in communion and again, there is no condemnation. There is no shame. But there is conviction. And there is guilt in terms of, ah, what do I do with that? And I pray that you wouldn't run into behavior, that you would absolutely open your heart to a God who is trustworthy. That's my hope and that's my prayer. Last week when we spoke about tolerance, we talked about two different definitions that are important to note again. The first is modern tolerance, which used to, which was what some of you grew up with, that you could sit and disagree, but you didn't have to destroy each other. There can be some civility within our disagreements. However, that's not the culture that we live in today. We have modern tolerance today, which is if you say something that you disagree with someone, it's a personal attack, which goes into polarization, and then we are actually further divided apart. God is a God of unity. He created the universe sin always creates division and brokenness. It's the world in which we live. And so today we want to start, however, with an acknowledgement, and the acknowledgement is this. I think Jackie Hill Perry said it best, that our sexuality is not our soul, marriage is not heaven, and singleness is not hell. Okay? Our sexuality is not our soul. It's a part of our lives, but we are much more complex than only our sexuality that we in the church have elevated marriage oftentimes to a place of idolatry, that marriage is not meant to su supply and fulfill all your needs. Jesus is. And if you look to a spouse to fulfill what only Jesus can fulfill, that you're going to find yourself wrestling with deep challenges as well. And then, of course, singleness is not hell. Again, I want to remind you that Jesus was single his entire life. I don't think he lacked purpose or, or fulfillment whatsoever. So you don't need to be married to live a purposeful, passionate, full life experience. I'm not diminishing any of those things, but I do believe they have to come into their proper context. And so today, the whole heart and goal is this. It's 2019, and so oftentimes we think that we're more enlightened when we look at those within history. But everybody, when you look back in history, is being formed and shaped by things happening around them, beliefs and cultures and practices and traditions and all of those things. So the reality is that oftentimes in 2019, we don't actually give cognizant thought to how the music, the podcasts, the social media things that we follow, the lectures that we listen to, the political parties that we follow, whatever it happens to be, blah, 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 the church tradition, all of those things, all of these things are forming and shaping us. And so here's the reality that oftentimes we don't think about 
We think about we come to church, and then when I come to church, there's a sense of discipling, but when I'm in culture, I'm just me. No, everything is trying to form and shape us into something or someone. And so the reality I want you to begin to think about, I want to ask you a series of questions, and I want you just to think a bit about it. I want you to first identify your own worldview. Don't rhetorically spit them out at me here, but just think about them in your own head. But when it comes to love, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to sexuality, what is your worldview? Do you define love, marriage, or sexuality from a self-centered place, it's all about you, or a self-sacrificial point of view? In relationships, is the bullseye happiness? If so, if someone's no longer making me happy, then it doesn't work, or is it holiness? That their job in my life is actually to help. They're there. Yes, there should be some joy, absolutely, but they're there to actually help me be more like Jesus. What's your bullseye and your target? Uh, For sexuality, is it a skill? Is sex a skill for you? Is it inclusive? As many partners possible, uh, you know, so I can get better at it. Is it inclusive or is it exclusive? Is it under covenant to be known and to fully know? What is your worldview? What is your identity rooted in? These are really important questions. And lastly, do you see God's plan as we're going to engage here? Do you see it as a pathway to fullness or do you see it as repression? Do you see it as repression or do you view it as redemption? Philippians, he said, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a pervasive point of view on sexuality. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spoil sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that traditional Christian morality offers it the fullest, most satisfying life because surveys reveal little difference between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and cohabitation. I told you we're going to ice the room. Now, it's often no fault of the church in one way, and that is just in the New Testament alone, there are 60 plus warnings around sexual immorality, or pornea is the word in which we're looking at. It's kind of like the junk drawer of all sexuality. That's the word pornea. All right, so 60 warnings alone, and we're going to see it as we move forward today. And here's the tension. This is Scott Stalls, a pastor in Nashville, said this. The true relevance of Scripture is that Scripture shows no interest in being relevant. That is, it shows no interest in being adapted, revised, or censored in order to be more in tune with the ever-shifting times than the sex question is one that sincere believers must wrestle with, and we all must wrestle with it in our culture today. In the church world today, there are historical understandings, so the historical perspective would still see marriage covenantally blessed by God between a man and a woman, but you also have within church world today, those who would be progressive, who would also view it as monogamous, but they would include same-sex couples within this context. And so there's much debate in the church world today. Everyone, so here's the reality of it. Nobody disagrees with what the Bible says. They're simply disagreeing with how they're interpreting what the Bible says, because what the Bible says is rather clear, as we're going to see. But yes, in culture today, there are different interpretations of it. A few books that you can read and then a YouTube video that you can watch if you didn't get enough of it this morning in 30 minutes um, is, here we go, you can, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis is a classic. If you've never read it, you need to read that. Um, the Problem of God is a really good book by Mark Clark that you can read, but also Loveology by John Mark Comer. And if you see books and you go, then you can go onto YouTube and just uh, put in the search bar, John Tyson, Church of the City uh, in New York. His name's John Tyson. We've pulled some of his material for this message today. John Tyson, Church of the City, New York, and you can watch his lecture on it. It's about two hours long. And I want you to know that 
next year, next year in our Bible school, we're going to be doing a whole six weeks on sexuality, which is going to be 12 hours of material within it. Um, so I'm trying to condense that into 30 minutes, so please be gracious with me as I step on 947 landmines this morning. Okay? So let me reinforce, God is, not, God is not the killer when it comes to sexuality. He is its inventor. And so why do most Christians care about marriage? Even though our behavior is no different than the world in which we live. Why do Christians care about the whole topic of marriage? Well, the Bible starts and ends with a wedding. It is a central picture. It is a defining symbol of Christ's love and the church. Okay? It's, a defined, it's there. And thus, it's a critical way in which we understand sameness. Everyone say sameness. Difference. Okay. Sameness. Difference. So you and I are created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis, Genesis teaches us, right? All life is created in the image and likeness of God. All life is created in the image and likeness of God. Sameness. Yet we're not God. Different. So marriage is a picture of sameness and difference. Okay? That's why it's critical to the understanding or the framing of it. To the person beside you while we're here, look them right in the eyeballs and say, thank Jesus you're not God. And what's actually really frightening is for some people, that was new information for them. That's, that's you, you just offended them. You, that's hate speech to some people in this room. That's hate speech. All right, so let's look at what the Bible says and let's continue to move through it as we begin to, as we, as we talk about this. So then the Lord God said, it is not good that man be alone. So here man has full relationship with God. And God still says it's not good for man to be alone. If you know the creation story, God created and it was good. God created and it was good. God created and it was good. The man is alone. He goes, that's not good. Okay, but even though man had full relationship with God, that's still not good. So, I will make a helper fit for him. Helper is not subservient. It's not an employee. It's equality. And the scripture says that to show it, it was taken from the rib, not the head, so that woman would lord over and not the feet that she would be under, but from the side, from the rib, or as most women say today, God started with man and said, I think I can do better. <laughs> Look at me just playing right to those things. So sad. So sad. Amen, it gets worse. Yeah, maybe you don't mind this, but I just want you to know that if you read the whole of Scripture at the end of the Scripture, if you ever think, if you're ever a woman in church and you think, like, how come everything's always, like, so male-dominated, I do think God has a divine, beautiful sense of humor because we as men are going to be known as the bride of Christ for all eternity. So <laughs> that's there. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is... At last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then it says this. If you've been to a wedding, you've heard this. So I want you to think, okay, this is Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve had no parents. So there's a pattern here that's being established that far supersedes Adam and Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So Adam can't leave his father and mother. doesn't have him. And hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Everyone say ikad. We'll talk about that's what that word means. <coughs> and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So God's first commandment for men and for women around sexuality is not don't, it's do. Be fruitful and multiply. Under the covenant that I've established, sameness, difference, men, women, be fruitful, do. Okay? 
not don't. But here's what we see. We see men and women absolutely naked and unashamed. And when it comes to sin, when it comes to sexuality, the dominant emotion that most people feel in the area of sexual brokenness is shame. And they're naked and they're unashamed. Sin enters the picture and we see the very first form of religion. Adam and Eve take you know, they, they kill, and, or they take coverings, they, these leaves, and they begin to cover themselves. And the first question that God asks humanity is, how did you know you were naked? They begin to use external things to cover their shame. All right? It was never God's heart. It was never His intention. Naked and unashamed. And today, at least in Canada, I would say that we have never been more naked and yet simultaneously never filled with this much shame. Hookups, one-night stands, friends with benefits, pornography, treating one another as transactional, trying each other on and disposing of each other like clothing are all things that we see in our culture, power dynamics, unhealth, all of it. Did you know that every 60 seconds there are 1.4 million swipes on Tinder? For those of you who know what Tinder is, you're going, wow. For those of you who don't know, what's Tinder? The Lord bless you and keep you. So all of culture, both church culture and the culture in which we live, understands that there's shame and there's being amazing work done in the area of shame. Brené Brown is a gift to the world in terms of bringing it out. Yeah, we can disagree on some things, but she's a psychologist doing great work around this because shame comes out in all of our lives in different ways. When you look through, if we just kind of move the lens now up to like the 1950s and 60s in particular and forward, in the 1960s, how many of you are alive? Can I see your hands, please? How many of you will not lift your hand at all? <laughs> you just self-identified? That's great. In the 1960s, we had the sexual revolution, which by every account was a revolution that overthrew dominant views around sexuality, forever changed views around sexuality. Um, again, as far as a revolution goes, it was powerfully effective. Some things are really wonderful that happen in terms of um, equality and the conversation about equality between men and women. These are critical, critical things. But the dominant message around sexuality is anything that is repressive is to be dealt with. So removing restrictions, removing repre repression, that's one worldview that we have today. The other worldview seeks to reduce harm, but the problem is the dominant message around in the church has often been fear. It's been fear. The dominant message that we have given, again, is don't, 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 which leads to shame, which leads to people don't talking about it. Almost we magnify sexual morality, and it's, it's greater than almost any other thing. So again, one is through looking at freedom through the lens of self-identification or self-expression, and this includes our sexuality. But I want you to take a moment and pause if that's your worldview, and I just want you to honestly just look at the data. Look at the data around pornography. Look at the data around rape culture. Look at the data around Tinder. Look at the data around suicide rates post-surgical transition for transgendered people. Look at the data around long-term effects of marital satisfaction around cohabitation or living together. Just look at the data. You see, the viewpoint of freedom is popular because it often sees sex as nothing more than an appetite. 
But every single one of us know that's not the full story. John Mark Comer says this, We like to define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, wherever we want, with whomever we want, but to Jesus, that's not freedom, that's slavery. See, freedom, at least in Jesus' mind, is the ability to do whatever we should to enjoy the world as God intended to live fully awake and alive. Mark Clark says it this way, contrary to modern thinking about freedom for which restrictions are seen as oppressive, we should fight to be liberated from them. The wisdom of the Bible and most human experience up until most recently is that restrictions are the secret to deeper truth, flourishing, and joy. Fish are restricted to water, but only in water are they free to flourish. If a fish tried to live outside those restrictions, it finds itself dying a slow death. So if you went down to a river source and grabbed a fish and said, oh, fishy, you have never experienced New York City, you poor little fishy, and you took it from its boundaries, you would not be helping it. You would be harming it. We have a river in Ottawa called the Ottawa River, and it's been amazing to watch our community get together. We're going to have to continue to volunteer in the cleanup. But you can see that that which is beautiful, when it goes over its bounds, becomes destructive. And so the scripture is talking not about freedom in terms of throw off every restriction, but nor does the scripture talk about fear, that fear does good things in our hearts, in our lives. So again, a freedom worldview says that providing it's mutually consensual, and consensuality is absolutely critical, it's vital, or else it's criminal. Providing it's mutually consensual, sexual liberation is not to repress, reduce, or diminish your sexual appetite. Again, consent is critical, but relationships can be consensual and toxic and unhealthy for us, even damaging. And I'm going to ask three questions here, and please, I'm going to do it with full sensitivity, not trying to harm, not trying to stomp on areas, and never, ever, 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 ever trying to shame. But I am simply trying to point out that sex is not just an appetite. Because the pain of a sexual assault doesn't stop when the assault happens. Sometimes the shame with what we've watched on the screen doesn't end when the screen goes blank. Nor does the pain of adultery stop if a relationship is over. No, Christian or non-Christian, we understand that sexuality is not like food. It's an appetite, yes, but it's different. That it does touch our emotions. Of course, it involves our physical bodies, but it touches our emotions. And what the scriptures actually talk about, that sex is also spiritual. That there are soul ties and there are spiritual implications to ikad, to oneness. I told you the room would get iced. So out of this sexual 60s, at least 60s and 70s, I'm only going back there. Well, I went right back to Genesis, which is pretty far back. But if we really look here, this message of freedom, again, the church began to talk about fear. And again, the heart of it was to do no harm. But what time has showed us is that there's a harmful element to the teaching that was rooted in fear. See, the gospel is that you and I are all unworthy of His grace, that we can't earn it. 
And if I were to highlight what I'm speaking about, it would be with this analogy that actually happened in a university. That a well-meaning, well-meaning preacher, it's easy in 2019 to look back with shame, but if you've ever experienced sexual brokenness in your life, you sometimes will go to great lengths that you don't want others to experience, providing they have the choice not to experience it. And so to convey a message, a minister took a rose and he had it passed out amongst the students. And the rose was perfect when it was presented out, but when it came back, it had petals broken, leaves broken, stem broken. And the question the minister asked this group of teenagers or 20-somethings in the room was, well, who would want this rose right now? And the dot, dot, dot is then don't give yourself away. Now, that is a brutal example. And there was another pastor in the back who stood up bolted out of his seat as soon as the other minister at the stage said that and screamed, Jesus wants that rose. See, what the minister failed to understand is that for many of us in culture, sexuality is not a choice. Something may have happened to you. So how is that message received? In church, gay, straight, transgender, before these are positions and issues, they're people. They're people who deserve full respect and listening and understanding. They're not positions to be won. They are people to be loved. So it's dangerous. And listen, outside of marriage, I'm on team abstinence. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm also on team redemption. That says that no matter what happened to you or what you did, whatever brokenness in your life, I am grateful that Dr. Jesus can heal all things in our hearts and life. That he didn't come for the healthy. He came for all of us who are broken. In fact, one of the greatest brokennesses that Jesus went after is those who were self-righteous believing they were perfect. Jesus seemed to have all the time in the world for people who were caught in various predicaments, but he didn't, he seemed to be much more terse between those who would paint a contrast and then appear to be self-righteous in contrast to somebody else. And we just have to own these and some of the things that we have done in the church. So I'm here to tell you today that your purity, does it include your behavior? Absolutely. But your purity is not based on your behavior. It is based on a bloodstained cross plus nothing. And from receiving his gift of grace and his ongoing grace, we allow him to change our hearts, change our wants, change all of these things, not to earn purity. It's a gift that we receive. How many you know that we're all equal at the foot of the cross? Every single one of us. So sexual revolution talks about freedom. And the contrasting message oftentimes was, you know, through religious circles, was, was seemed to be a fear-based response. But Jesus teaches us something different. And that life isn't found in freedom of all restrictions, bondages. But nor is it living in fear. Jesus is actually more passionate about this other word, which is Formation which is what you believe, what you feel, what you watch, what you listen to, 
Some of you are saying, ah, it's starting to sound a lot like legalism. No, no, no. What I'm saying is everything is permissible, permissible, but not everything is beneficial. How are these things forming you? This is where Jesus lived over and over and over again. So take masturbation as an example. Ice, room iced. <laughs> now, the Scriptures don't say anything about masturbation at all. Nothing. So when the Scriptures don't say anything... Don't make them say what they don't say. But the Scriptures say plenty about a selfish lifestyle or self-indulgent. So the question you want to ask yourself is, if this practice is engaged in my life, is that forming me to be self-sacrificial or self-centered? It's a different question. The question isn't how, far, how close can I get to the line without sinning. That's not the question. The question is, how do I get close to Jesus for wholeness? my own heart, but also when I look at the lives of others. So here's what the Scriptures say. Do not be conformed to this world. Everyone say conformed. But be transformed. Everyone say transformed. So humanity has no choice. You're going to be formed by a con or something that's trans in terms of changing you from one thing to another. You have no choice, Paul was saying, about formation, just how you're formed. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So a question around pornography, a question around masturbation, a question around all of the things that we see within sexuality or again, how are those things forming me? As a man looking at pornography, how is that forming and shaping my view of a woman created in the image and likeness of God? Is it reducing her or elevating who she is in Christ? As a woman looking at pornography, how is that framing or shaping my mind around men? What is it framing? What is it looking? How is it engaging that? I want to give you an example here that may seem far-fetched, but stay with me that we're going to bring it right to a close here. Um, does anyone here, we all have seen a flooding in our region this last season. I want you to imagine Mayor Jim Watson standing up at his podium with his little, not little, sorry, that came out really bad, but, but with that little city, I did it again, City of Ottawa logo right there. And I want you to imagine him looking right into the camera and saying these words, our city of Ottawa. Now, if he ever says that, that would be pretty awesome. But, you know, we are experiencing major flooding, and we need to call in a specialist. So we have called in The Rock. <laughs> we have called in Dwayne Johnson. I, he can do amazing work in earthquakes with skyscrapers. Now, everybody would go, yes, you in the front, you, you, you do know that's not real, right? Like, he, he's an actor. Some of you, when you watch movies with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, look at your dating person or your engaged person or your marital person and go... Don't do that. <laughs> How come you watch beautiful movies where the person knows the exact right thing? How come you can't be more like that? Because I don't have a team of writers. All I have is my own head that's like, uh. 
You look awesome. Just doesn't warm a woman's heart. Why do I say that? Because we all know that's fictitious. We know there's not a building on fire and Dwayne is saving it. We know this. But what's really confusing about pornography is it's equally acting, but what's happening is real. And that is distorting. Which causes us sometimes to look at our marital relationships and ask the question, why can't you be more like an actor or actress? And if you actually do the study and look at the data, many of what, we, what, what is within a pornographic film was actually spontaneous in its rape. So the question you have to ask yourself, if you're bringing that into your life to spice your marriage up, is how is that forming and shaping? Critical question. Paul said to the church in Corinth, which was rife with sexual immorality, because it's not like it's new, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of his body or their body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So every sin is equally offensive to God, but they have different consequences in life. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with whom you have from God? And then he says this, you are not your own. You are not your own. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It is this call, this higher vision, not around, you know, freedom of repression, but within the restriction and the boundaries of God's design, you can flourish and be free, but also not through fear. Sexual immorality here is the word pornea. Again, it's the junk drawer of every sexual sin. So you may say, well, Paul didn't talk about this sin or that sin. This is the junk. This is where they all go. He didn't go specifically through all. He went, I'm just talking about all of this. Okay, it's a larger word here in Greek that he's engaging at. And another thing that Paul says here that's critical that the Scriptures repeat over and over and over again is that all sin leads to death, either death of a dream, death of innocence, death of a relationship, death of a marriage, death of a desire, death of integrity. So we, need a, we, we don't need to become sin-focused, but we need a greater robust theology around sin. But God's point of view of sex is unity or oneness or ikad. Ikad means that we're fused together. This is what the scriptures teach. We're fused together at the deepest levels that we fully know, including one another sexually, and we're also fully known. It is this place of being absolutely naked and in Jesus unashamed. And this is why covenant is so vital to human sexuality. One of the questions I'm often asked, especially with those who are living together or cohabiting, is, well, why would I ever get married to someone um, that I wasn't sexually compatible with? And I think that's a great question. I just think it's a little bit short-sighted. And so if you can hear me, my heart as your pastor, take it also from someone who's been married for 20, almost 25 years, um, I also want to remind you that that person is not going to be the same person over the next 25 years. So what you may be judging in one season, I promise you, they're going to change. And if the bullseye on your target is happiness, you is in trouble. But if the bullseye is holiness, 
If the bullseye around love is self-sacrifice, it's a different narrative than if the bullseye around love is self-centeredness. This doesn't only mean sexuality. This message should be making every single one of us say, God, we need your help. Let's finish here. Let's finish with Jesus, where he said something controversial. And it's popular for people today to say something like, well, Jesus never spoke about marriage, or he never spoke about sexuality, or he never spoke about LGBTQ issues. He never spoke about all of these things. Um, and I get that. It's, it's however, it's, it's, it's not honest. Because he did speak about things. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28, he actually speaks very specifically about one part of sexual brokenness. And he says, you have heard it said... You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his what? In his heart. So my question for you here just to re reflect upon is, did Jesus take the Mosaic law and did he lower the standard or did he raise it? Sometimes it's like, well, that's just in the Old Testament. But if you go through case point by point by point, never did Jesus lower it. He raised it, which made us actually cry out and go, we can't do it. We need a Savior, to which he said, that's exactly why I'm here. Matthew chapter 9, 19, verses 3 to 6, Jesus talk, answered a question around marriage. And in doing so, he went right back to Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? We already read this in Genesis. This is the words of Jesus, who is the creator who was there when Genesis was written. That was my little pastoral joke there. Didn't kind of went over like a lead balloon. So they are no longer one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So finally... How does Jesus treat someone caught in sexual sin? Does he shame them? Does he overlook them? What does he do? John chapter 8, verse 3 to 11 shows us that Jesus isn't just good. He's amazing that Jesus does want this rose. But Jesus also confronts the culture in which he lives. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teach her, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Pause. Absolutely true, but only half true in terms of the full truth is if she's caught in the very act of adultery, which is rather graphic, but if she's caught in the very act of adultery, at minimum, there should be two people present. So how does Jesus go after the injustice of inequality in his day? Now, the religious scribes and the Pharisees say now in the law, and they quote back to him the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? And they said this to test him. Not that they had compassion. They didn't see a person. They saw a position, and they were destroying her heart and life to win an argument, and that still happens today. so that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And there's lots of speculation and messages around that. But the scriptures are pretty clear. Don't read into that too, too much. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and here's what he said. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay? So Jesus, we, we read this in the New Testament, but the new covenant started after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So he is still under the Mosaic law. And it just said in this context... That he is without sin among you be the first one to throw a stone at her. So he is fully justified under the law to pick up a rock and let it fly. And he's the only one. 
But what Jesus says in this moment is, no, you're all broken roses. Every single one of you are broken like this woman. Every single one of you are shamed. But not all of you are, have humility enough to recognize. So continuing. Once more, he bent down, he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left all alone and the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, though, dot, dot, dot. Go. And don't live in the identity of your brokenness or your behavior. Live in a freedom that only I can give you that is found within living in the boundaries of what my word says.